You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. I ended the first lecture with the remark that Thomas's great achievement was that he had established a relationship between reason and faith, which had to be reestablished because of the loss of the hegemony, as I put it, of the liberal arts tradition with the arrival of Aristotle. I also mentioned that there was something anomalous about a master of theology occupying himself with the writings of Aristotle, as Thomas did in over a five-year period towards the end of his life when he commented on 11 or 12, depending how we count, works of Aristotle. And I said, this is moonlighting. What was he doing in his day job, so to say, during this period? What did the theologian do? The training in theology in the medieval university was a two-track system. On the one hand, it was a training in scripture, in the works, the books of the Old and the New Testament, so that what the fledgling theologian listened to was a master explaining a book of the Old Testament, a book of the New Testament, and so forth, and progressing through the books of the Bible in that particular way. Of course, what the master would be doing is availing himself of the things that the fathers of the church, St. Augustine, for example, had had to say about this book or this teaching and the like. So this accumulation of past interpretation, as well as a close reading of the book of the Old or of the New Testament. That was one track. The other track was the lecturing on and interpretation of a work called The Sentences, which was a compilation of Christian doctrine that had been put together by a man named Peter Lombard, who ended up as Bishop of Paris, a 12th century figure. And this is in four chubby volumes, and it's influenced enormously by St. Augustine. But what Lombard does is, well, he divides his work into four books, and the books are divided into distinctions in which the Trinity, the Incarnation, problems associated with the Trinity would be dealt with. And the fund of interpretation and learning over the Christian tradition would be brought to bear on that. And this work was considered to be such a useful compilation that it became a textbook, in effect, in the second track of theological education at the University of Paris. And eventually, in order to show, to establish himself as a master, this was part of the apprenticeship that went on over some dozen years, the theologian, the fledgling theologian, would have to comment on and then produce a written commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard. And so we find in, after the 13th century, in among the works of any great medieval theologian, his commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard. And so too do we in the case of Thomas Aquinas. So this is the sort of thing that Thomas would have been lecturing on in Paris when he came back in 1269. He also would have been engaged in disputes. It was a feature of the medieval university that a master would post a thesis that he proposed to defend, and some days before he intended to do this. And this enabled people to think up all kinds of difficulties 
for maintaining the position that the master wanted to maintain. And then on the great day, there would be the coming together in the aula of the masters and students in theology, and the difficulties would be thrown at the master who was proposing to defend a, a thesis. The first response to it would be given by one of his assistants. Again, this is part of the apprenticeship fledgling theologians went through. But then there would be the magisterial reply to the difficulties that had been raised. And within, it varied from university to university, but within a few days after that event, the master had to submit to the stationer, the university stationer, a written form of that disputation so that those who could afford it, the vellum and the copying fees, could get a copy of it. And that was what publication amounted to. So this disputing and lecturing, and there was a third task of the Master of Theology. They were usually given in terms of three Latin infinitives, disputare, legere, and predicare, preach. So that the theologian, the master of theology, the regent master, the teaching one, would also be preaching at liturgical events in the university. I mentioned that Thomas was a busy man, in short, any master of theology was, and we have a lot of disputed questions by Thomas. We know he engaged in this a lot. We have other commentaries of his on scripture and so forth that date from this second period in Paris. And as I mentioned, he was writing the Summa Theologiae. This wasn't something that was a product of his formal teaching. And then as well, writing these commentaries on works of verse. A busy man, a very busy man, and one who clearly saw the necessity of putting together, of understanding, of fighting through the difficulties that were posed by the arrival of Aristotle and figuring out what is the relationship between these claims of reason on the one hand and of revelation on the other. So what I want to sketch for you today is Thomas's views on the relationship between faith and reason or philosophy on the one hand and theology on the other. Now, if you were to look at the very first question of the first part of the Summa Theologiae of Thomas Aquinas and the first article of that first question, you would find Thomas asking this, what need is there for any discipline beyond the philosophical disciplines? Why do we need any disciplines beyond what those that Aristotle, for example, uh, had developed the ethics, the metaphysics, the physics, and uh, the politics, and so forth? Doesn't that sum up learning? And if we say, well, what about God? He would say, well, in the metaphysics of Aristotle, the question of God is treated. God is seen as the first cause of everything else. Therefore, there's nothing missing. Why do we need something else? Now, I mention that now because it tells us something very important about Thomas's understanding of what theology is. He says in his prologue to the Summa that he is going to try to put as much order as he can into this presentation of Christian doctrine. And perhaps it's an implicit criticism of the ordering or the lack of it sometimes in the sentences of Peter Lombard. When you compare it with the Summa, it can sometimes seem to be almost random in the topics, the order of the topics as they are taken up. But Thomas says, I'm writing this book for beginners. Huh? 
and I'm going to give them milk first before they go on a meat diet, huh? scriptural reference, so that these neophytes in theology are going to be given a formula, a milk formula, in order to get them into theology. But that first article, the first question, or the first part of the Summa tells us what? These may be neophytes in theology, but it's clearly presupposed that they already know philosophy. I mean, what would the question mean to them if they didn't know what those philosophical disciplines are? So the first point that I would like to make about the relationship between philosophy and theology for Thomas Aquinas is that theology presupposes philosophy. That, of course, is not to say that religious faith presupposes philosophy. Theology, as we see, presupposes the faith and builds on it and certainly doesn't produce it, nor does philosophy. We'll come back to that. What is the relationship between faith and theology? Because otherwise it can look as if the faith depends on philosophy. And of course, Thomas wouldn't have held anything as nonsensical as that. Okay, so that's the first and simple point. Theology presupposes philosophy. Neophytes or beginners in theology are considered to be adept in philosophy. And when we think of the structure of the university, that's exactly what we would think. In order to get into the faculty of theology, one would have had to pass through the faculty of art. He would have to be a master of art. And as the 13th century developed and the liberal arts were seen not to be sufficient, that meant mastery of the great divisions of philosophy as they were taught by Aristotle. So that the question then is this, if Thomas holds, as he does in answering one of the objections in that first article of question one of the first part, that there is a theology that we learn from the philosophers as well, that is there is teachings about God. Aristotle tries and succeeds in the eyes of many of us to prove the existence of God. So that there is a theology. And as a matter of fact, what Thomas would have learned from reading Aristotle is this, that what philosophy means etymologically is, of course, the love of wisdom. It is a quest for wisdom. And it involves a variety of disciplines, as that first article that I've been referring to mentions. What need is there for any discipline beyond the philosophical disciplines in the plural? But they are ordered to a culminating discipline which is called wisdom or metaphysics, or in terms of its chief concern, it is called theologia, theology. So one of the questions that Thomas is going to put to himself and feel is presented to him by this feature of Aristotle's work is what is the relationship between the theology of the philosopher and the theology that is based on sacred scripture? So when I begin by saying I want to talk about the relationship between theology and philosophy, as we find it in Thomas Aquinas, there is another sense in which we can say we're concerned about the relationship between the theology based on scripture and the theology of the philosopher. And where would that theology of the philosopher be found? It would be found in the culminating inquiry of philosophy, the ultimate discipline, that towards which all of the other disciplines move, as we will be seeing when we look at the opening of the metaphysics of Aristotle as Thomas understood it.
what we uh, see in Thomas when he recognizes the importance of understanding philosophy etymologically as the quest for wisdom is that there is going to be what Jacques Maritain called in his masterpiece, there are going to be degrees of wisdom. And the first wisdom will be that which is sought by and achieved by, according to Thomas, achieved by such philosophers as Aristotle. Aristotle's metaphysics begins, as you may know, with a ringing generality that all men by nature desire to know. And this might seem to be one of those excessive remarks that philosophers make when they're not thinking of ordinary human affairs and so forth. We might think we know a person or two who doesn't exhibit this supposedly universal desire for knowledge. But what Aristotle does in, in the text is to illustrate the claim that all men by nature desire to know by saying a sign of this is the pleasure that we take in our senses, particularly in the sense of sight. He says even when we're not looking in order to do something, when we're just looking, we take delight in this. So the initial claim becomes much less surprising. Of course, everybody curious, everybody wants to see and hear and find out about things. It no longer sounds like so preposterous a claim. It might sound like everybody wants to sign up for philosophy courses when we hear all men by nature desire to know. Of course, it eventually will lead on to an understanding, unpacking that sentence will lead on to an understanding of what the philosophical quest is, but it will be tied to something that is considered to be a feature of human life as such and not a peculiarity of a certain kind of sophisticated person who devotes himself to arcane subjects and so forth. What Aristotle does is to move through the external senses, the imagination and memory, and then he talks about the arts and finally gets around to mathematics. And he notes that when we're talking about an art, when we talk about the difference, say, between art and experience, an experienced person can show us how to do something but may not know why what he's doing has the result that it does. He just knows that it does, and he's done it again and again, so trust me. Huh? Whereas what Aristotle means by techne or art is someone who can tell us why a certain process has the effect that it does. And Aristotle suggests we think the one who knows the why is wiser, he's not punning as I am, wiser than one who merely knows the fact that. So there emerges this notion of understanding why, the causes of things, this is the mark of knowledge. And the analysis then in this opening of the metaphysics moves to the view that to understand everything in terms of the ultimate causes is the drive that is stated, that's implicit in that opening claim of the metaphysics that all men by nature desire to know. This desire, this thirst, is only going to be fulfilled completely when we know the primary cause of everything that is. In short, when we have a knowledge which is divine. It's divine in the sense that its principal concern is with God as the ultimate cause of all things, and it's divine in the sense that if there's any knowledge that God has, it must be like this, so that the movement of the quest for knowledge through the various arts and sciences culminates in this wisdom whose principal concern is knowledge of the divine. So that 
wisdom and theology in Aristotle come together. This is what philosophy is trying to do. So then the question becomes, what is the relationship between that kind of theology and the theology based on scripture? You see, the problem has changed considerably from that of the liberal arts tradition, where the relationship between secular learning was merely a matter of how do we put together grammar, rhetoric, and logic, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music, how do we put those together on the one hand, and on the other, how do we put together two seemingly rival theologies, the, the theology of the philosopher on the one hand, and the theology based on sacred scripture, which had been developed by such figures as Augustine and Peter Lombard bringing together the writings of the fathers, but chiefly of saying, what's the relationship between that on the one hand and the theology of the philosopher? That's what had to be determined. Was this in conflict with or complementary to what believers believe? And Thomas's view, that I, I stressed that in our first lecture, is that there is a complementarity between the two. But of course, you could say that, you have to show it. And the writings of Thomas are a sustained effort to establish and to sustain that view that there is this compatibility. So we have a wisdom, a philosophical wisdom, which culminates in theology and knowledge of the first cause of whatever is. And Thomas, I mentioned Jacques Maritain's masterpiece, The Degrees of Wisdom. You'd have this philosophical wisdom, and then you'd have the wisdom of theology. And then beyond that, you would have the wisdom that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this would be the living of the Christian life in all of its fullness. And the mark of Thomas's thought is not that these things are just piecemeal and you can relate them in some way, but they come together in a great synthesis that is usually what people are referring to when they talk about Thomism, not just what he had to say in philosophy or not just what he had to say in theology, but this notion that all of this is moving toward a deeper and deeper living of the Christian life and in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, wisdom would emerge. This is what the mystic, this is what the contemplative person is guided by, this gift of the Holy Spirit. So you have these degrees of wisdom, in short. And by calling them degrees, as Maritain did, you're suggesting a continuity and not just, you could do this, you could do that, you could do the other thing. But what we have here, then, is a kind of unifying, but a unifying of things which do have their autonomy. And philosophy for Thomas is something that has autonomy. Now, how would he characterize the wisdom of the philosopher? I mentioned that in that opening article of the Summa, he's asking about the philosophical disciplines in the plural and wondering why you would need anything beyond them. And the sense of the question is, we have a theology in philosophy. What are we doing? in a summa theologiae. Why are we duplicating the effort as it might have seen? But at any rate, what Thomas is suggesting there is that things have been accomplished in philosophy in order to get to this culminating and defining wisdom, this theology. And what are they? Well, Thomas, on several occasions, will, in reflecting on what he has learned from Aristotle, suggests that there is an appropriate way in which we should learn the various philosophical disciplines. And this is a matter of learning, not of discovery. He's not 
saying this is the way the human mind hit on these things first of all, but in the teaching and learning process where you have the master who is leading someone from not knowing to knowing and kind of speeding up the process that could conceivably have been achieved by way of discovery, he is moving us along and taking us through stages that will lead us more surely to the goal that we want to go to. Well, all that is great fanfare for saying the order of learning, the philosophical sciences that Thomas proposes, is that first of all, we should learn logic. Then we should learn mathematics. Then we should learn natural science. Then we should learn ethics. And then finally, finally, the wisdom that is the culminating and defining activity of the philosopher. And this is something which is dependent for our being able to do it on our learning these other disciplines first. That's the point of the order. So that the theology that the philosopher manages to come up with, he comes up with not when he's a boy, as he might do well in mathematics when he's young, but wisdom of this kind could only come with age. Not necessarily, you can get old without getting wise, but you can't get wise without getting old. Huh? So it takes a lot of time. And this underscores the, the quest, the way in which philosophy is seen as a way of life. And the telos, or goal, is this wisdom, which is such knowledge of the divine as the human mind can achieve on its own. So that we have in Thomas not simply the recognition that there's something called philosophy, but I'm a theologian. He's saying, what I do as a theologian is dependent on those philosophical disciplines, and those philosophical disciplines are ordered in a particular way. And if you don't learn them in that order, if you don't know these sciences, you're not going to be able to handle the culminating science, which the text of Aristotle in which that goes on is called the metaphysics, coming after the physics as the very title of the work suggests, metatafusica, after the books of the physics. So philosophy is not just a name for some single activity for Thomas. We could say, looking at it from the university point of view, it is the sum total of those disciplines that should be learned in the faculty of arts. And there is an order in which those disciplines ought to be learned, and only if they're learned in that order will one have achieved the goal of philosophizing. As I said, it's an astounding and not always emphasized fact that when he begins theology and is addressing himself, as he says to beginners, Thomas is nonetheless assuming that they are not beginners in philosophy, but they know what the philosophical disciplines are, and ideally, of course, would have achieved the goal of philosophy. Well, I've mentioned the task of Thomas as a theologian and some, in passing at least, some titles of his writing. This is volume 50 in the Leonine edition of the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Opera Omnia, the completed works. It's not yet complete. It's been going on since Leo XIII in the 19th century, but it's nearing completion now. This particular volume contains commentaries on Boethius. Thomas commented on two theological tractates of Boethius, the man I mentioned who had done translating from the Greek to the Latin of some works of Aristotle, also was a theologian and produced a number of theological tractates, and these attracted a great deal of attention in the Middle Ages. And Thomas, when he was in his first professorial stint at the University of Paris, produced these two commentaries. 
I mentioned that he commented on 11 of the works of Aristotle. He also did a tabula of the ethics, which we can count as the 12th contribution to our understanding of Aristotle. The disputed questions that I mentioned, these are gathered together. I mentioned that the master had to present a written copy of that dispute uh, to the university stationer for possible copying. So there are disputed questions. There were also things called quadlibital questions, much more of a free-for-all, as the adjective suggests. There are commentaries on books of scripture. There are the Summa Contradentiles of Thomas Aquinas, which is the only one of the three summaries of theology that he began that he actually finished. This was begun during his first professorship at Paris and finished during that Italian interlude that I referred to in the first lecture. So we could get some sense of the scope of Thomas's way. The Summa Theologiae, of course, was another effort on Thomas's part to put order into the discipline of theology, and this was not completed. And he also did a Compendium Theologiae, which is incomplete, which was to turn on the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. He was a very productive scholar. I have actually held in my hands manuscripts of Thomas. There is in the Ambrosiana, Bibliotheca Ambrosiana in Milan, they have portions of the third book of Summa Contra Gentile on the vellum that Thomas himself wrote. And once when I was there, this was actually put within my hands. And you have this sense of a physical contact between you and this 13th century author. It's very difficult to read Thomas's handwriting, and only during the early part of his career does he write himself. His handwriting came to be known as the litera inintelligibilis, the unreadable hand. I think he was left-handed, but in any case, he wrote in a kind of Latin shorthand, and it just it looks like chicken marks when you see it. It's just writing, obviously, at great rapidity. Finally, they assigned people to him to take dictation. And one of them was a man on whom we rely for much of our information about Thomas, the man Reginald of Piperno. And then we find much more legible texts of Thomas. Sometimes we find a text which is written by one of the people to whom he's dictating, and then there will be a section written in Thomas's own very distinctive hand. Often we'll find this in the margin, but sometimes in the column, there will be this unreadable hand of Thomas. Now, whether the secretary, he was another Dominican, whether he excused himself for whatever purpose for a time, and Thomas didn't want to waste the time of his absence, just picked up the pen and went on by himself. There's a wonderful book on this by a man named Dondine called Le Secretaire de Saint Thomas, The Secretaries of Saint Thomas, in which he goes into this at great length and produces many photographic pages of text to give us some sense of Thomas's mode of operating after, we might say, the first stint in Paris where he had someone to dictate to, sometimes several. And there are these stories about Thomas being able to comment on different works at the same time, moving from one secretary to the other. I think people are trying to figure out how could someone have been as productive as he was. Now, many medieval masters were extremely productive. If you looked at the collected works of St. Albert the Great, for example, you'd be equally impressed, or at least similarly impressed. St. Bonaventure, the same thing. But Thomas's the scope and quantity is certainly noticeable, but it's beyond that is the contribution to what I'm 
putting forward now as the central achievement of his intellectual life, and that is to argue for, not just generally, but in detail, in terms of texts that were problematic, for the complementarity of philosophy and the faith of Christian truth. What for Thomas would be the difference between philosophy and theology? I mean, we said some things about it, but is there some way we can characterize that difference that would enable us to distinguish between philosophical discourse on the one hand and theological, that is based on scripture, on the other? And of course, that's one of the elements of the answer. In a philosophical argument, in philosophical discourse, one man is addressing other men in terms of what anybody can know. And if somebody is trying to persuade us of something philosophically, what he has to do is to hook it on to what we already know and show that what we already know and these considerations, those considered, force us to accept something that we hadn't hitherto thought or known at least explicitly. But the device or the characterization of philosophical discourse is that it appeals to those principles and starting points which are in the public domain, which can be considered to be the natural patrimony of any human being as a human being. So a philosophical argument that would purport to be based on some vision that I had huh, last night wouldn't be a philosophical argument. How do I know, or how do you know, uh, whether I had a vision like that? If I'm making a philosophical argument, I have to be able to hook anything novel that I want to put forward and to get your assent to, I have to hook it up with what you already know. And if I can't do that, I lose. I mean, it's the failure of communication, as we would say. So that, on the one hand, the starting points or principles of philosophy are in the public domain. They are knowable by any human being simply by dint of being a human being. Now, philosophy goes very far away from what most of us are thinking about all of the time, but it has to be hooked up with that, otherwise it would simply be airy speculation. So that, for example, in the understanding of philosophy as the quest for wisdom, as the drive towards such knowledge of God as we can achieve by our own power, that knowledge has to be put forward as derived from what anyone could know about the world around us. So that Aristotle's famous proof for God at the end of the physics of the prime mover is arguing what? That argument can be stated very crisply as whatever is moved is moved by another. It is impossible that there should be an infinite series of moved movers. Therefore, there must be a first unmoved mover, and that's God. That's the proof. Now, there's a lot that has to be said about that proof. It's not based on self-evident premises, so the premises have to be established and so forth. And this occurs at the end of Aristotle's eight-book work called The Physics. What I'm pointing to is the way in which the premises from which the conclusion is derived are anchored in an experience that anyone can replicate. So there's nothing private about it. There's nothing special about it. There's no claim to a knowledge that isn't in principle available to anyone else. This is philosophical discourse. As opposed to what? As opposed to accepting as true what God has revealed in Scripture 
and then deriving and deriving other truths from those that are implicit in them and connecting them to one another and so forth. This kind of discourse, if it's an argument for some new truth from truths that have been found in scripture, that argument can only be a vehicle for a new truth for one who accepts the premises of the argument. And the only way you can accept the premises of the argument is not simply in terms of what anybody can know, but in terms of what God has revealed about himself. So that the two theologies that emerge from the comparison of reflection on scripture and the culminating task of the philosopher can be distinguished in terms of the premises that operate in discourse about God in philosophical theology, on the one hand, and the way in which theology in this now scriptural sense, the way in which that operates. So that philosophy and theology differ from one another in terms of their principles or starting points, in terms of what counts in order for the argument to work. So that the believer knows that someone who does not accept Christian faith is not going to be persuaded, perhaps not even interested, in the argument that he is developing, let's say, about the trinity of persons in God, or the union of the human and divine nature in Christ. The theologian is worried about these, or concerned with them, reflects on them, ponders them, because this has been revealed, that Christ is God and man, that there are three persons. What does this mean? What the theologian wants to do is reflect on that to show that it does not involve any incoherence, the way in which it comports with other things that have been revealed and so forth. None of this is going to be of interest or make much sense to someone who is not a Christian believer. So the presupposition of theology in this sense is faith. And faith is the acceptance as true of what God has revealed because God has revealed it, not because I comprehend it or grasp it or say, well, that's obvious. Sure, there's three persons in the divine nature. What else? I mean, that becomes familiar to us as Christians. But what's the profession of our faith, for example, in the Nicene Creed? But we don't comprehend what that means. And we realize that this is a testing kind of situation. We believe what we do not presently see in the expectation that the time will come or when time ceases to be, that we will see even as we are seeing. So that the promise is that this faith, this dark knowledge, this enigmatic knowledge, will eventually give way to knowledge, but not in this life. Sometimes Thomas puts this relationship in this way. He will say there are two kinds of truths about God, those that can be known or established on the basis of ordinary human thinking in terms of principle, knowledge available to anyone, on the one hand, and those truths about God which are accepted only on the basis of divine revelation. And the usual examples of those would be the Trinity, the Incarnation, or we might say any one of the articles of the Nicene Creed would be something to which we give our assent. And we do so not because we comprehend or could establish the truth of these things by ordinary kinds of argumentation, but because God said so. It's revelation. So it's an authoritative warrant 
that one has for the truth of these things. Now, the theologian is in the same position as all believers with respect to that, but unlike many other believers, he reflects on them and he brings to bear on his reflection on the truths that have been revealed everything that he knows in philosophy. So that one of the features of theology as it develops in the 13th century, scholastic theology, is that it looks a lot in terms of its procedures like a philosophical science. And in fact, Thomas, when he begins the Summa Theologiae, is saying, now this is a new science. This is the Scientia Divina. And what is its subject matter? And he uses the methodology, invokes the methodology that Aristotle developed to talk about philosophical sciences in talking about this new science based on sacred scripture. Now that can be very misleading because it can mislead someone into thinking that the theologian, when he argues in this way about the persons of the Trinity or the relationships between the persons of the Trinity, when he asks, how do we attribute things to God, to the divine nature or to one person or the other and so forth, that he's establishing these truths as if these arguments were meant to establish that there is a trinity of person in the divine nature. And that, of course, would be a terrible mistake. Sometimes, well, throughout the history of Christianity, you have kind of outbursts of just impatience with theological speculation. And usually it's because people think it's attempting to reason our way into the truths of faith in the way in which we would reason our way into views of the cosmos or the composition of physical objects and so forth. That would be a mistake. If a theologian thought that's what he was doing, as perhaps Hegel did in the 19th century, well, he's confused. And there's no way in the world in which one could establish the truth of the trinity of person on the basis of things anyone could know, or the union of the divine and human nature in Christ on the basis of what anyone knows. Now, the believer, of course, has signs that point to this, that he interprets in that way. He doesn't just pick it out of the air someplace, but he knows that it is not a clinching kind of argument, and that what clinches his faith is the authority of God revealing. So very different starting points for the two theologies. And if there is a relationship between philosophy and theology, it's going to look methodological. It's going to, there's some kind of dependence. What is the dependence of theology on philosophy? Well, in part, it would be depending on it for such questions that are raised at the outset in the first question of the Summa. What is the subject here? What are we going to try to prove? Can we use metaphorical language? And all these problems arise out of a kind of philosophical background. But there is another issue that Thomas drew attention to, and I want to end this lecture with a sketch of that. And that is this. When you talk about, as Thomas will, about truths about God that can be known on the basis of reason alone, what would be example? That God exists, that there's only one God, that God is intelligent, he knows what he's doing, and so forth. These are things that philosophers have established on the basis of argument. And Thomas finds those arguments and others that he devised on the same level of philosophy convincing. So there are certain truths about God which can be established using simply natural reason. There are other truths about God which you accept, as I've been saying, only because God has revealed them 
the Trinity, the Incarnation, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, and so forth. What will occur to us when we see that kind of contrast made is this. The things that the philosopher is said to prove about God are part of the package of revelation. I mean, if the philosophical truth about God is that God exists, of course the believer believes that God exists. He believes a lot more than that, that he's one nature and three persons, but underlying that is, of course, God exists and this is the way he has described himself. So too with respect to the fact that there's only one God. Of course, that monotheism is absolutely essential to Christian belief and so on. So what can puzzle us, perhaps, is the fact that what we begin by talking of in terms of two sets of truths about God seem in terms of revelation actually to be fused into one. Huh? And of course, then the question arises, what are they doing there? Huh? And Thomas spent a lot of time reflecting on this. If the fact that God exists and that God is one, that God is intelligent and so forth, if these are revealed as well as knowable, why would God tell us something that we could know on our own? That he would tell us about the trinity of persons or the resurrection of the dead, and that makes sense because we'd never figure that out on our own. But these other things put forward initially, well, this is what philosophers were able to know and are able to know about God. Why did God reveal what is naturally knowable? And Thomas's reason, you could predict, when we looked at the order of learning the philosophical sciences, we mentioned that in order to be wise, one would have to spend a lot of time acquiring these preliminary sciences in order to do anything like philosophical theology. An enormous background of knowledge in the other disciplines is required. One is growing old as he pursues all those disciplines. But if God exists, that is a truth so important for the lives that we lead that it is a tremendous indication of the divine mercy that we, by way of faith, immediately have that settled for us along with, of course, the specific truths of Christianity and the believer doesn't worry about that. He has the conviction of faith. Yes, of course God exists. Huh? And this enables him to lead his life in the light of that conviction. Whereas Thomas imagined someone saying, Maybe when I get to be 50 or some other enormously old age and I study metaphysics, maybe then I'll be able to determine whether or not God exists. What are you supposed to be doing in the meantime? Now, there are a lot of, kind of sociological answers to that, but you can see the problem that Thomas is putting, so to speak, and he's saying, isn't it marvelous that God should have told us not only things that we could not have known about him, apart from his telling us, but also things that we could have known and can know apart from his telling us. So what Thomas then suggests is this. If we look at the package of Revelation, we can say generally that it's made up of truths that are mysteries for us. We accept them not because we comprehend them, but because their truth is vouched for by God as revealer. But now Thomas is aware of the fact that included in this package of revelation, so to speak, are those truths about God which philosophers 
once and now and in the future can establish about God. And Thomas says, well, although these are believed by the believer, they are unlike the Trinity and the Incarnation. It's not necessary that they be believed. It's wonderful that we've been told, in effect, these truths as well as the others. But Thomas said, let's distinguish these from the mysteries of faith proper and call these preambles of faith, preambles of faith. And this enables him to mount one of his most, to me at least, powerful arguments for the reasonableness of believing the mysteries of faith. That is, the reasonableness of accepting as true what God has told us about himself when we cannot comprehend or determine the truth of those things independently of accepting them on God's word. The reasonableness of this, Thomas argues, can be seen in the fact that some of the things that have been revealed, these preambles of faith, can be known to be true. That God exists, that there's only one God, that he's intelligent and so forth. And from that, we can conclude what? If some of the things that have been revealed can be understood and comprehended and proved, we can derive from that. That gives us reason for thinking. It's reasonable then to think that the other revealed truths, the mysteries, are themselves intelligible in themselves. That doesn't prove their truth, but it shows the reasonableness of accepting them as true. And this for Thomas was an extremely important point, because if there's anything he would dread is the suggestion that there is something irrational about Christian belief. Now that's a very tricky point, we'll be coming back to it, because he is not going to be suggesting that Christian faith can somehow be established on the basis of philosophical arguments and so forth, but rather that uh, there is a compatibility and a complementarity, again, between philosophical truths and the truths of faith. But that notion of the preambles of faith does have this argument coming from it. If some of the things that have been revealed are knowable, although the believer has believed them, let's say, since childhood, he might say, now I know that God exists, I've got this argument. Or now I know that the soul is immortal, I've got this argument. Huh? I believed it all along and so forth. I believe a lot of other things attached to it, but this is something that can be known. That kind of underwrites the reasonableness of the whole package, even though it is not comprehensible by us now. So that for Thomas, faith is an intellectual virtue. It's a perfection of our intellect and not a kind of vacation from it. But as I say, this is a very complicated, in some respects, distinction that he's making. Complicated in the sense that many people have seen it as implying things that Thomas did not want to imply, in fact denied that it did, and so forth. What it is not saying is that we are able, on the basis of philosophical argument, to establish a mystery of the faith. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.